The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from John 14, 12 through 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ryan, for reading that passage for us. This morning, as we continue in this sermon series on the Last Supper, which, is, which focuses in on a whole lot of things. It focuses in on basically four chapters in John's Gospel, devoted to about four hours of time, which I don't know that you'll find in Scripture anywhere a more concentrated focus on such a short period of time as this. Um, the other thing that's it's so fascinating about this is, is we're learning so much about the author of this gospel as we read the Upper Room account because he was there, the Apostle John. And so he shines through and his personality and his experience with Jesus comes through quite a bit in this gospel and, and, the, and the way it ties into other things that he wrote in his gospel. And then also, we talked about this last week, how one of the kind of the themes that runs through the, the Last Supper narrative in John's gospel is that on its surface, what Jesus is doing is he's teaching his disciples how to be Christians in the world. There hadn't been Christians in the world yet. And they're going to be leading the church and, just, and building the church. And he's teaching them very fundamental things about what it will look like for them to be followers of Christ after the resurrection, focusing on things like humility, serving one another, being united as one and united to the Father, Jesus being the only way to salvation, um, the communion table, this demonstration that he gives the church a sacrament to return to again and again. John, as a writer, one of the beautiful things about John's gospel is that it's very poetic um, and one of the things that's evident in things, when you read things that are poetic in nature, is that there's, there's authorial intent, that the author is, is very intentionally connecting things to one another. And I believe that John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is really the author of Scripture, all of that. But I also don't believe that John was just some automaton, right, you know, writing down like checked out of himself, writing words on a page without understanding. He was thinking. He was a writer. He was a poet. He was a friend of Jesus. He was a, a sensitive soul. And so he weaves things together in his gospel to make connections. And one of the questions that I think comes up 
in this passage in particular, which on its surface, as Western people, we will read it a certain way and we will think this is a passage about this, when in fact it's actually about this other thing. We'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things that John is asking here of us is is this question, and I raise this question from this pulpit pretty regularly. And the question is, what do you want from Jesus? What do you want Jesus to do for you? You ever thought about that? What is it that you want from him? Specifically, with this passage, what kind of help do you want from Jesus? John tells a story earlier in his gospel, and I'm going to read it because it'll be quicker to read it than to explain it. This is from John chapter 5, verses 2 through 9. And he says this. So we're going back about 10 chapters or so. He says, there is, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man who had been an invalid for 38 years was there. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me which is not an answer to his question, is it? And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. I've always been drawn to that question that Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? And man, is that a good question for us to ask ourselves before the Lord. Because the truth is, we learn to navigate our lives by way of our struggles and our afflictions and our doubts. We live in a time right now where you can go get diagnosed with anything you want on TikTok, and then you can just kind of tell the world, don't hold me responsible or accountable for X, Y, or Z because I have A, B, and C. Do you want, do you want to be healed? You might think that the answer is obvious. Of course I want to be healed. But what does the text say? Jesus knew that this man had been there for a long, long time. How did Jesus know that? Because he's supernatural? He is supernatural. He knew that because he passed that, sheep, that, that gate, the pools of Bethesda. He'd been passing him his whole life. And for 38 years, this man had been there. He was a fixture. Do you want to be healed? And the man said, there's just all these reasons I can't get into the healing water. And when Jesus heals him, what strikes me about this is he takes as much away from the man as he gives to him. I mean, think about what it would mean for this man. Have you ever held a job for 38 years? I'm not trying to be pejorative but you fill your days a certain way, year after year after year. It's a routine that becomes established. It's how you move through the world. And this man, for 38 years, has moved through the world in a very particular way to the point where he's a fixture there. This is his thing. He's made it work. 
And when Jesus heals him, he takes away his income. He takes away his routine. He takes away his identity and his community, and he replaces it with another one. Would you like to have your identity so seriously revised as that? For Jesus to give this man new life, he has to take from him his old way of living. And the man at the pool had to think about that. Do I want to be healed? What do you want Jesus to change for you? Do you want him to change anything for you? Do you want a new life? Every disciple around that table in the upper room is facing the same thing. Fishermen, tax collectors, political advocates. They're all there. And Jesus is about to take away the pool they've been sitting by for the last three years. And send them out walking. If we pick up where we left off last week, as you recall, where we've been so far is he's gotten his disciples in this upper room. He's washed their feet. He's dispatched Judas to go betray him. He's told Peter that before the rooster crows, three, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will have denied me not once, not twice, three times. And then he tells his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. And then he says he's going to prepare a place for them. And they say, we don't, we don't know the way. And he says, I am the way. And I'm the truth. And I'm the life. And no one comes to the Father unless they come through me. And so today he's continuing this discussion of how he is preparing them for life after the cross. And he's talking about what he will do. And he's talking about what they will do. And he's talking about what he will give them for their calling. And how he will be with them in their calling. And so he is preparing us, his disciples now, who live out our days as well after the resurrection. There's a lot packed into this text. I'm just going to kind of walk through it a point at a time and zero in just on a couple of key things. The first thing he says is he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now that's crazy on the surface. These people who have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. You believe in me, you're going to do the things you've seen me do. And these disciples have seen Jesus do amazing things. After he healed that man by the pool of Bethesda in John 5, the people were astonished because it was undeniable. It wasn't just that they heard that this person who was rumored to be lame was now rumored to be healed. It was, no, this man had been there for 38 years. If this was a con, it was a long con. Like longer than Jesus had been alive kind of situation, right? But what happened? They were astonished, and Jesus' response to their astonishment is he says this. Remember, this is John writing. He says, my father is working until now, and so I too am working. The father is working, so I'm working. And so what he's doing is he's putting himself on the level with Jesus. And that was scandalous. 
but it was also confounding because he's saying the Father's working, I'm working, we're working together, we're working as one. It was scandalous, but it was confounding because there really was no denying that the man had in fact been miraculously healed. Well, here now, if you saw it in the text when Ryan read it, what does Jesus say? He's not saying as the Father is working, I am working. No, he says, as I am working, you will also work. What? I mean, it was enough for Jesus to say, as the Father is working, I'm working, we're working as one. But now he's saying, as I'm working, you're working too. You will be working too. As I work, you will also work. There's no way that those disciples around those table could wrap their minds around what it is that he was saying to them then. But they understood later the scope of what he was saying. And part of what he was saying there is he was saying, your life is joined to mine in such a way that it's not just that we're joined together in a relationship, which is foundational and essential, but in that relationship, we're joined together in a purpose. There's a purpose Jesus has for our lives. And then he goes on to say, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. He's saying to his disciples that they're going to do greater things than they have actually seen Jesus already do. And the reason will be directly connected to him leaving them. Saying, I'm going to leave you, and then you're going to do things you can't even imagine. And at this point, they must be looking around saying, this math doesn't work. Like, what are you talking about? We only do these things because you're with us. Ah, exactly. Exactly. But before he gets into that answer, he speaks to this ongoing connection that we will share with the disciples, reinforcing what we focused on last week, and that is to be a Christian is to be in a relationship with Jesus. By definition, it's a union. It's an intimate connection. It's, it's a marriage. And he goes on to say it this way. He says, this is how this is going to work. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is where Christians, church people, take these verses, yank them out of context, slap them on a poster, and turn Jesus into a genie. And before we see the beauty and the grace of this passage, I don't want to let us off the hook, okay? Jesus is saying that when he goes to the Father by way of the cross and the resurrection of the ascension, he will not be gone. But instead, he will be ever-present with them. And I think we should pause to reflect on how radical this is. What he's saying here, it's almost impossible to believe. He's saying, when I leave, I'll be with you more than you ever knew. And remember, the disciples don't have a fully formed paradigm for thinking of Jesus as the Son of God yet. Because all they've really known is Jesus, the person who's been with them. And they've seen the miracles and they've heard the claims, but this part of life after the cross, resurrection, that will be paradigm changing for them. And so they're learning and they're about to see it all come clear when he rises from the grave. But up until now, they have known him as a person in their midst. And what he's saying here is he's saying, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in me. 
And we hear that and we say, this is, of course, this is the Son of God talking, this is Jesus talking, but it's radical. Let me give you an example. Let me try to flesh out how radical this would, would be by giving you an argument that's just absurd. Imagine if I, your pastor, Russ Ramsey, right here at this pulpit, said to you, got some tough news. I'm, I'm going to die soon. But when I do, when I'm gone, I want you to pray to me. Pray to me. And when you pray to me, I will hear you. And not only will I hear you, but I will be the one who answers your prayers, congregation. You would have me removed. You should, you better have me removed from this pulpit right away. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples. I'm gonna be leaving soon and when I do, I want you to pray. You don't need to pray to the Father, pray to me. You can pray to the Father, but you can also pray to me. And when you pray to me, I will hear you and I will answer your prayers. Okay. That we start to warm up to and we start to think, oh, this is actually useful information. But what does he mean when he says, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it? Remember, Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, and one of the things he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer is to say, not my will, but yours be done, right? That has to hold with our interpretation of this. Those two things have to be able to work together in harmony. They can't contradict each other. And so what is Jesus saying? What he's not saying is he's not saying, ask me for anything you want and I will dole it out. Money, cars, success, love interests, whatever you want. Just ask me and I will dole it out. All you have to do is just use the magic phrase in Jesus' name and I will be powerless to resist you. Of course he's not saying that. And the reason we know he's not saying that for a number of reasons, one reason is because we know even on a human level that would be profoundly unloving to say, ask me for anything and I'm gonna give it to you. Because when our children ask us for things, a lot of the reasons we say no is because we know what they're asking for will harm them. What is he talking about then? Our minds go immediately to Jesus is talking about the outcome of our prayers. And he's not. He's talking about who hears the prayers. Who to address the prayers to. He's saying to address a prayer to the Son is as praying to the Father. They are one. But the ground on which the Father receives our prayer is the grace and the mercy of his Son. And so we pray in Jesus' name, appealing to him as what? As our access to the throne room of God. This is how God is glorified in the Son, that when we pray to our triune God in Jesus' name, we are appealing to the righteousness of Jesus as our credential for being there in the first place. Jesus unites us to the Father. You say, okay, okay, but 
Look at verse 14. It's clear. Ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. It's definitive. It's clear. So I should be able to say, supply me with this thing. Heal me of this affliction. Give me this desire. Because when I asked, I asked in Jesus' name. And you said that if I did that, then you would do it. Don't lie to me, Jesus. And many have tried to use this verse as a gotcha with Jesus. Like Jesus, in a moment of carelessness, lost himself and overpromised. And now on a technicality, we get to hold him to it. And if he doesn't deliver, he's the one who is dishonest. Do you see how we got there? Entire churches are built on this premise. Maybe this is your question. Maybe you're honestly confused. And it would make sense to be honestly confused because we read through Western eyes. And when we read this as being a verse about the outcome of a prayer rather than the one who's listening to the prayer, it gets confusing in a hurry. So I want to stop for a second and get into what's happening here. And what I want to ask you to do is think about something. that. So on Thursday night, the women here had uh, an event called Evensong, uh, which is a kind of teaching and contemplative time of prayer. And Maggie Payne talked, and I was not here, but I heard, and Maggie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the things that you talked about when you were teaching was transactional relationships. Is that correct? Transactional relationships. For the next seven minutes, we're gonna be talking about that. I did not know this was already written. But I want you to think about your transactional relationships. There's an interplay between friendship and transactional relationship that's a little bit like a Venn diagram that they can overlap, right? In other words, like you can be friends with your boss, but you still work for them. They still pay you. There's a transaction that happens. And part of what joins you together with them is this shared work. But have you ever been in a relationship that you thought was a friendship and it turned out to be mostly just a transactional relationship? Or have you ever tried to convince yourself that you really were someone's friend when in truth the main reason you were drawn to them was because of how that association could help you. Can you be honest about that? These relationships, transactional relationships, where you can attach yourself to somebody of influence, can be exhilarating. They're exhilarating especially when you benefit from the access and the resources or the influence of this other person. You can even go to a place where you can hardly believe your luck that you even get to be in a relationship with this person who, who carries you into things that you never imagined you would have access to. Are you with me? What happens when the transactional nature of that relationship comes to light. 
What are the ways or the events or the things that transpire that lead you to discover this was a transactional relationship? Those hurt, right? What happens when one person just gets bored with the other because they aren't bringing anything to the partnership anymore? Or what happens when the one who benefited from the transactional relationship finds greater success than the one on whose shoulders they stood to get there and then no longer has time for them. There aren't many worse feelings in the world than the sense that someone you thought was your friend was just using you. Are we all feeling a little, little gross yet? Perfect. Now let's go back to where Jesus says, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love him, what can that verse mean and what must it not mean? In light of what he's about to do for them, offer up his life for his friends, which Jesus says there is no greater expression of love in this world than to lay down your life for your friends. After all he's taught about God's kingdom being for the humble and the repentant, and after all the miracles that he has performed for the hurting, that they have seen and been a part of, do you think Jesus is saying, use me like a cosmic mending machine? Here's the magic words. What would that say about the quality of your love for him? To see him that way. To treat him that way. To be so self-absorbed that you would reduce him down to somebody you would attempt to control. Verses like these expose our hearts. They reveal things about ourselves. We know Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but yours be done. He teaches us to pray from a posture of deference. Deference to the wisdom of God, to rightly order our prayers in humility. He teaches us this. And so the simple contextual truth of what Jesus is saying here in the upper room is he is not talking about the outcome of prayer. Our emphasis is we run to the, I will do it. Instead, what he's saying is he's saying, he's talking about the one to whom we pray. In context, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm gonna leave you for a little bit, but when you talk to me, I'm gonna hear you. And I will be the one who answers you. He's saying, when you pray to me, it's as though you're praying to the Father. So if you pray to me, I'm, I'm not going to turn and then run it up the flagpole and then get back to you. <clears throat> pray to me, and I will hear you, and I will respond to you as one with the Father. He's not talking about how to get stuff from God here. Jesus is talking about who hears us. When we pray, he's saying, I'm about to leave you, but you can still talk to me. 
and I will still hear you, and I will be the one to answer. And so when we read this verse as being about getting stuff from God, then that becomes an opportunity for self-examination for us. Because another way to ask it is, are you gonna ask a friend at death's door if you've been named in their will? And if so, was that person ever really your friend? Or was the whole friendship about that question really? Do you want to be healed? Jesus goes on. This is the very next thing he says. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus' intention for us is that we would live our lives responding in love to him. And the way we would respond in love to him would be by yielding to his commands. Our relationship with Jesus, which includes our obedience to Jesus, has to be built on a love for Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus, which includes our obedience to Jesus, must be built upon our love for Jesus. And that precludes any posture toward him by which we try to get him to perform for us. Of course, Jesus is saying this to them, not on some hillside when he's waxing eloquent about other principles, but when he's about to set this table for them and go be arrested and beaten and killed and defeat the grave for them so that they can have life in his name forever. We just can't take a passage like this and yank it out of that context and expect it to have any substance at all. Is your love for Jesus the kind that leaves you wanting to obey him? Or do you just want to be named in the will? Why should we take care to examine whether we have a transactional relationship with Jesus at all? He tells us in this passage, it's what the rest of it's about, is he saying, because you have a purpose in the world. We have a relationship, but it's a relationship with a purpose. There are things for you to do and to be about, to not just bide your time until the inheritance. And so he goes on and he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Ah. When he says he dwells with you, he's talking about himself. And when he says, and he will be in you, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I'm with you now. I'm about to go, but my presence will not leave you. And I won't just be another guy at the table, but I'll actually be inside of you. I'll be closer then than you experience me now. After telling his disciples that they'll do greater things than they have seen him do yet, and after telling us that we can pray to him and he will hear us, he tells us when he leaves us to prepare a place for us, he'll send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with us forever. And then he tells us how the Spirit will be with us. He says you'll never be apart from him. You'll never be apart from the Holy Spirit because the Spirit's role will be to help carry out the will of Christ in the world and in our own lives, and the Spirit will indwell you. Notice how Jesus brings the full Trinity into this discussion. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all here. 
And what's he saying? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit hear you and know you and are with you. The Spirit and the Father hear us in our prayers. The Spirit indwells us and helps us. Okay. So let's land this plane. Do you have any idea how precious you are to the heart of God? If you're looking at this text about how to pray and how to game the system by using the words in Jesus' name, I promise you, you do not have any idea how precious you are to the heart of God because you think part of the task of prayer is to coerce him into loving you. If you have any sense of how deep his love for you goes, any conviction about his steadiness when life seems upside down, look at what he tells his followers here. He says, I'm preparing an everlasting home for you. I'm doing that. Christian, he is preparing an everlasting home for you. And then he says, when you pray to me, I will hear you. When you talk to me, I will hear you and I will answer you because I'm one with the Father. And then he says, and I'm preparing a place for you. When you talk to me, I'll hear you and I'll answer you. And I'm sending my Holy Spirit to live inside of you as an indwelling presence to help you live in this world. Jesus sends us his Holy Spirit. What does his Holy Spirit do? He sends his Holy Spirit to comfort us, to teach us, to lead us, to show us the Father, to walk us home. Through everything that this world throws at us, Jesus gives us his spirit to accompany us. And then he says, be my witnesses in the world. Be my witnesses as you walk. And even there, know that the Holy Spirit will be with you, giving you words. If all these things are true, there's just no other conclusion for us to draw then in some way we don't understand we're wanted by God. That'll break your heart if you let it. So may the Lord Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit, continue to deepen our love for the Father. And may we cling to him as our great hope And may we look to him, not just for what he can do for us, but who he is to us. And who is that? He is the God who calls us, and he's the God who keeps us, and he's the God who eventually brings us to where he is, this place that he has prepared for us, where the defining characteristic of that place that he gives us is that it is where he is. There we shall also be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we confess that there's so much mystery in trying to understand what it means that your Spirit lives inside of us and is with us. And yet, Lord, as we walk with you, we see the evidence of it. We see that you're not aloof, you're not distant that you're with us help us to see that more and more and to trust that father expose the ways in our hearts that we treat you in transactional ways and let us not turn to you then in shame but turn to you in hope because of the things that you've promised us already that 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 assure us we don't need to have a transactional relationship with you that you have already done for us everything that we need 
And your only posture toward us is to receive us into your care and that everything has been ready. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for the gift of the communion table to remind us to let go of our need to control and just to receive from you. May we do that today in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.